I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, it's our Made in BC book club featuring two authors. We'll talk with award-winning author Sam Weeb of New Westminster. Sunset in Jericho, set in Vancouver, is the latest installment of what's been described as Terminal City's grittiest, most intelligent, most sensitively observed contemporary detective series. Class warfare is what Sunset in Jericho is about. It's about a group of young, radicalized people going to the extremes of trying to hold the powerful accountable and change things and turning to violence to do it, which is sort of the point where Wakeland, as a detective, breaks with them. He's actually very sympathetic to some of the things that they believe, but the violence is something that he's not comfortable with. We're also chatting with Susan Musgrave of Haida Gwaii, who has published more than 30 books and won awards for poetry, nonfiction, children's books, food writing, and editing. Her latest offerings are a book of poetry entitled Exculpatory Lilies and working with chef Lisa Ahier on her book of stories and recipes from Tofino's Sobo Restaurant. I never really know what I'm going to do next. I'm waiting for something. Since Sophie died, which was September 8th, 2021, I haven't written a poem. Until last night, I started one, which is a good sign. started writing about my husband when he died, which is almost five years ago. I lost a husband but inherited a drawer full of socks because he had lots of socks. I've been wearing them, but now they're starting to wear out and they have holes in them. On our Today in BC Made in BC book club. Susan Musgrave of Haida Gwaii joins us. Her latest book of poetry entitled Exculpatory Lilies has been selected for the shortlist for the prestigious 2023 Griffin Poetry Prize. Thanks for joining us today, Susan. Hi, you're very welcome. You're not the first one to stumble over exculpatory. My poet friends can't pronounce it. I had a cartoon on my fridge for years. It's by Michael Cruz. It was a woman opening a bouquet of lilies, and she says to her husband, oh, it's been ages since you bought me exculpatory lilies. And I thought, oh, this is so great. It means exonerated from guilt. It's a legal term. I think they say exculpatory evidence, which means it can't be used against you. In my experience, I see men with sort of sad bouquets rushing home, and I think, oh, they've done something. <laughs> they're, trying to, they're trying to get out of something. <laughs> the guys have been happily married a long time, do. They bring flowers home? Yes, of course. In my case, the title poem is about my husband bringing me a bouquet, and he was addicted to heroin at the time, and it was his way of saying sorry, but... I knew nothing about addiction, so I just was angry a lot, but I learned that it really was way beyond me, nothing to do with me (laughs) at all. And so I just decided being kind is the best thing to do and to not be judgmental of people with addictions. But at that time, when I got the flowers, I felt that I didn't respond in the kindest way. As you mentioned, death and addiction are among the range of emotions in the book of poems which you dedicated for your late daughter and husband. Could you talk Mm -hmm. about the challenges of writing such a personal and introspective work? Most of my poetry has come out of grief and darkness. When I write nonfictions, my columns, I have much more of a sense of humor. That's where the humor comes in. But poetry, I think it doesn't attach itself to darker feelings. When you're happy, you don't really write poetry because being happy is enough. So the only way I could stay sane dealing with my daughter's addiction was I wrote a series called The Goodness of This World that's included in the book, and it's about her first 10 years of life before she started smoking pot and then graduated to cocaine and eventually died of fentanyl overdose a year and a half ago. It's probably the worst, hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. But again, poetry 
it connects us. And I get so many people. We all know somebody who's aunt or a cousin or a brother or sister who's struggling right now. And it seems to be cathartic for people to read the book. When people say, well, I'm really enjoying your book of poetry, I say, I'm not sure that it's a book to be enjoyed as much as to be endured. But I think that some people, they don't feel so alone after they read it. Because when you're dealing with a family member who's addicted, especially to drugs, you can feel really alone. Alcohol is more socially acceptable. We've dealt with it for years. But since 2016, with the opioid crisis, it's all new to people. And there's still a stigma. Why did they use it in the first place? And Gabor Mate says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And of course, asking why the pain is a big question. And I think that's what my poems were trying to explore. Why the pain? Sophie used to say, I had the best upbringing. My parents loved me. You did everything right. I don't know why I'm on the street. And people would say to her, what are you doing here? You have a family. And it just, it touches everybody from all walks of life. It's just, I think your brain gets changed by drugs is the unfortunate thing, especially um, harder drugs. And you don't really have a choice after a while. Well, they wake up in the morning and they're sick because they're coming off the drugs. So they have to go and get whatever it is, their commodity, <laughs> their drug of choice to get well, especially when it comes to heroin or fentanyl. And of course, fentanyl is really unpredictable. It was me trying to stay sane, keep myself grounded in what I know, which is language and words. I gave one of the pamphlets to Sophie, and she was always fine with what I wrote. I wanted her to have it, saying, this is how much I love you, because it really is a tribute to the, the love I have for her. It's all I knew what to do. We all do what we can. Some people golf, <laughs> hit the ball extra hard, or other people write poems, and that's what I did. So it sounds like this was... Your therapy, grieving process. Yeah, in a way. I, I love language. I love trying to figure out whether the word and should go at the end of a line or at the beginning of a line. And I'll sit for half a morning thinking about that and I laugh with other poets saying, who else does that in the world? Who really cares? But you, when you care, you really care. It's like anything. You have to do it properly. And it's not easy. So sometimes I don't want to start a poem because I know how much work it's going to be, how much I have to put into it just fiddling with everything until I get it as right as it can be. You're known for experimenting with your form in poetry, and I wondered if you could discuss your approach to form and how you decide which form to use for a particular poem. I teach at UBC, and, and I have a whole module on poetic form, but I've never written a poem in a form like a sestina or a sonnet. I did write one sonnet, but I didn't know I was writing it. It was the last poem I wrote, and it was when I brought my daughter's ashes home from Vernon, on the plane, and I wrote a poem it's called Postscript because it's at the end of the series of the poems about her. And so someone said, oh, it's 14 lines, you've written a sonnet. And I thought, isn't that bizarre? So I write free verse, but there's a lot of internal rhyme. Sometimes I tap my foot as I'm writing, but it's not traditional forms, put it that way. I don't write haiku or there's so many. There are just hundreds of different poetic forms. And I love that idea that there's a Welsh form where the second syllable of the third word in the first line rhymes with the fifth syllable of <laughs> in the second line of the fourth word. And it's, it's so complicated. We think of form as rhyming couplets quite often, rhyming love with dove. If rhyme is predictable, it's not as effective. Ezra Pound said that rhyme should have an element of surprise. Otherwise, you can predict what's happening and your eye almost glazes over, like in some greeting cards. Bob Dylan's really good at odd rhymes, rhyming New York with fork and Things that you just don't expect. So I would say that I, all my poetry is free verse, really. That means 
Blank verse is something else. That's very structured, but I gather free verse is what I write. That's what I've been told. I don't have a formal education. I rose up out of high school in grade 10, and so I missed a lot. I've had to learn by reading and talking to people, and mostly by reading. That's how you learn to write, is by reading. You've lived in several different areas of Canada, as well as abroad, Mexico, Australia, Ireland. How has your experience living in different places influenced your writing, and is there a role you think the environment plays in shaping a writer's voice? The two places that I'm really attached to are the west coast of British Columbia. I grew up on Vancouver Island, and the west of Ireland, where I went when I was about 20. I think sometimes the places that you live when you're that age when you leave home and you discover there's a world out there other than, for me, what was on 10 Mile Point in Victoria, I think those places, you, you attach to them in a different way. That's been was my experience anyway. I still go to Ireland every year. Other places I've lived, I didn't feel at home. South America, England, I didn't feel quite as connected to the land as I do when I'm in Ireland. What's great about Ireland, it's a foreign country, but people speak English, but it's such a, an amazing form of English. Like Everybody speaks especially the older people, they speak in poetry because when they're translating, if Irish was their first language, the translation often is poetic. For instance, a bald man, they'll say, oh, he's like a full moon in a fog. (laughs) Instead of we would say he's bald. So I'm enthralled by talking to anybody because they come up with this most amazing expressions. And maybe they're cliches there, but to me, they're new. I'm very much influenced by landscape, but I'm Influence subconsciously, I don't consciously think I live on a river, I see kingfishers, I'm going to write about these things, they influence my poetry. They just creep into my poetry. I have a seven-sided house. One day, two kingfishers flew into two windows exactly at the same time, two windows that are on different sides of the house. Luckily, they flew away, they were just stunned. But I thought, what are the chances that that turned into a poem? Again, just happenstance, I think. We're all affected by the landscape we live in. London, England, I lived there for a while, and I started a novel set in the north of BC because I was so homesick. And that's why I came to Haida Gwaii. I was living in Cambridge, and I used to hang out in the Ethnology Museum because it was full of artifacts from Haida Gwaii. And that was my first introduction to Haida Gwaii. I was seeing this pole from Tanu that takes about three stories, all these drawers full of things from Cabra Bay, where I grew up, and it was amazing. So... Then I came to visit my first publisher who lived in Port Clements at Christmas and went back to Cambridge and was living with Sean Virgo, my friend. And I said, let's move to Haida Gwaii. It was called Queen Charlotte Islands. And we did. So that's how I ended up here. But it was really through reading about the place and feeling a real connection. I grew up on Vancouver Island. Now when I come home to Vancouver Island, I feel, oh, I really miss this place. But You always want to get away from the place you grew up. And you think it's the end of the world. You find out that it's not. It's the center of the world. But it takes a while to figure that out. As you mentioned, writing a novel, you've written in a variety of genres. Does your approach to writing differ depending on the genre? And do you have a preference for one over the other? Poetry is my first love. I don't really like writing fiction because you have to do it every day. Otherwise, you lose track of it. If you leave it for two days, it takes you three days to get back into it. So I think novelists are very disciplined people, (laughs) poets and nonfiction writers. Nonfiction, I can do a column. It's a big commitment to your characters, to everything else, to finish a novel. So it's not my favorite form at all. Poetry is where I'm juggling words and finding the right word. And it releases something, I guess, maybe endorphins or 
So it makes me feel good when I finish a poem. You never really finish a novel. You read it and think, oh, I could do this better. I could rewrite this again. And I just do so many drafts. It's an endless process. So, so I'd say that poetry is what I started with and probably what I'll end with. To say you have a way with words would be an understatement, but you also have a way with other people's words and have worked on some projects where you were an editor or co-editor. One of those is a book of stories and recipes from Tofino's Sobo Restaurant with Chef Lisa Aye. And our listeners may recall that the chef was on Dragon's Den a few years ago, which launched her to fame. And I wondered how you became involved in this cookbook project with the chef. I have friends who did live on Plaquewood Island, Sharon Whalen and Chris Taylor. They're old friends. Actually, Chris was from Haida Gwaii. And I had used to go to Sobo whenever I went to Tofino. And I had been in Ireland for at Ballymaloo House for the literary festival of wine and food, it was called. And there were all these famous chefs like Yotam Otolenghi was there. And I, I felt really out of place in the world of chefs because... They're quite serious. I'm used to writers who aren't, they're more, I don't know, di different milieu. But one woman asked me from Tartine Bakery, what temperature do you do your overnight rise of your sourdough bread? And I said, oh, I don't even know if my fridge has a temperature, but I just put it in the fridge. She said, oh, <laughs> anything under 40 degrees, the flavor will be no good at all. And I said, my friends like my bread. <laughs> I said, they think it's really good. <laughs> it actually is. That was if there, this high seriousness. So I ended up not having a very good time. And then when Sharon said to me, Chef Aye or Lisa, because she was a friend, wants to meet you. I thought, oh, no, because I like to go there to eat. Now I'm going to have to meet this chef. And it's going to be one of these experiences where she criticized the way I make salad or I don't know. Anyway, she turned out to be lovely. And she said, I've got this contract with Random House, but I can't write. And I said, what do you mean you can't write? Of course you can write. She said, no, I can't. She can. But who wants to write? It's hard work. I said, OK. She said, do you want to help? And I said, sure. But then COVID happened and I didn't hear from her for a while. And I guess she had to close down. All the restaurants did. And I was up here. And then I got an email out of nowhere saying, oh, my deadline has come and gone. And I'm supposed to have had the book in a year ago. And so I said, let's start. You send me a recipe and we'll just work away at it. And that's what she did. Every day she'd send me a recipe and then we would talk on the phone. Oh, then I would write it out. Writing a recipe is really complicated because you can't leave out a step. Like I found that with my own cookbook, A Taste of Haida Gawaii. There are mistakes in it. I forgot to put the Worcester sauce in the list of what to do with ingredients. Ah, And people reading recipes will want to know it has to be right because otherwise they'll screw up the recipe. So that alone is a challenge. She can write except that she sometimes can't spell. And I think she had some carpal tunnel things and she had an old computer that didn't work very well. So it was quite funny just trying to decipher what she meant. And we just had a good time. And we it kept us going for three months, just back and forth every day. And I had to channel her voice because I didn't want to be me because I was just co-authoring it, really. It's her book. And she's from Texas. So <laughs> I ended up with all these Texan expressions like, I haven't felt this way since a dog at my little brother <laughs> yet. I don't know where that comes from, but not my expression. Or bless your cotton-picking little heart. That was another one. So I got these in there. The publisher kind of took some liberties with my words. I think they didn't think I sounded enough like her, so they changed some things. But that's what publishers do, editors do there. But we just had a lot of fun, and 
neither of us wanted the project to be over. I think we really gave us three months of really feeling alive, as you do when you're writing a book. So I'm going to the Tofino launch, and I wanted to be there for it. The food is so amazing. Sobo, any chance to go there, I will. Yes, I visited Sobo when it was a food truck on the side of the road. I was lucky enough to be publisher of the newspaper in Clula Tofino for four or five years, so I get to visit the area on a regular basis. But I could sit and read cookbooks all day, and they're kind of like you've alluded there, like chemistry experiments. If you've missed something, (laughs) it may go awry, but I just love seeing what people do with the same basic ingredients as I do. Yeah, But it comes out completely different. But I really enjoy the stories in the cookbook because there's always a story behind why they make the bread or they catch the fish or whatever it happens to be. I think the stories are sometimes more interesting. I mean, you can find great recipes online now for anything. So I think the stories in cookbooks are what interests people. And they like to make the food, but they, knowing the story behind something, we all have, all our, we all have stories about meals. My favorite one, my mother, she made a steak and kidney pie and we all started finding these little kind of ball bearings in the pie. And my brother didn't get one, so he felt left out. But we were all laughing because she was mortified. Well, it turned out she had an old-time rolling pin that had ball bearings in it, and I guess it had broken. And so the ball bearings were in the pastry. <laughs> Luckily, we didn't break the tooth. But was, <laughs> of course, that became a famous family story. Whereas if it had been just a perfect steak and kidney pie, there'd be no story. That's a great story. It's the same with Lisa. She had really good stories about Tofino and about Texas. And so it's a combination of both the Southern influence on her cooking. And and I like the way she includes all the people who work for her. And she has profiles about that or people who are friends who bring her ingredients, that kind of thing. She acknowledges them. And that's lovely to do that because certainly takes more than one person to run a restaurant, as she well knows. Susan, any upcoming projects you're working on? What can readers expect from your writing in the future? I don't know. I never really know what I'm going to do next. I'm waiting for something. Since Sophie died, which was September 8th, 2021, I haven't written a poem until last night I started one, which is a good sign. started writing about my husband when he died, which is almost five years ago. I lost a husband but inherited a drawer full of socks because he had lots of socks. They're called statement socks. They were really gorgeous socks. I've been wearing them, but now they're starting to wear out and they have holes in them. So I started a poem about that because I put a a line on his Facebook post the other day. Okay, you've been gone long enough. Time to come home. No questions asked. And uh, everybody else started saying, oh, can you ask him to bring my husband with him? Can you ask him to bring my brother? And it was quite a lovely post because I said, let's start a GoFundMe to bring all our dead loved ones home and see what happens. I thought, okay, my mind is starting to go back to poetry. and Maybe it's this being shortlisted for this prize, which is quite amazing. I don't see myself as a person who wins prizes, but I could be mistaken there. I tend to forget. So maybe that's just made me start thinking I need to get back to work. Maybe I needed to let grief be what it has to be. You can't rush it, of course, but that scared me. I thought she's taken words with her because she was a kind of muse figure to me, my daughter. Ever since she was born, I'd been writing about a child who died. And it was that was quite scary to think that either this was just a parent's fear or was it a premonition? I'll never know. We all worry about that because it's our biggest fear. And I hate to say it, but it is the worst thing. When people say it's the worst thing I can imagine, losing a child. I think it's because they're so much part of you, part of your biological makeup. So it is like losing a huge part of yourself. And it takes a while to get that back. 
When the Today NBC Made NBC Book Club continues, award-winning author Sam Weeb of New Westminster talks about Sunset in Jericho, set in Vancouver. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Thanks for joining us today, Sam. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your latest book, Sunset in Jericho? It's uh, the fourth in a series of novels starring private investigator Dave Wakeland. He seems to be a pretty complex character. He's got a troubled past. I know that sounds ominous. His past is no more troubled than mine. I like to think of him as the millennial Philip Marlowe or Jim Rockford from the Rockford Files. He's a private detective who's always on the side of the underdog in over his head against forces that are more powerful than him. It's never been more so than in Sunset and Jericho. Well, as long as he doesn't drive like Jim Rockford, he's probably okay. James Garner was a fantastic driver. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to drive like that in downtown Vancouver. Probably not. The book is set in Vancouver for the most part. Can you talk about how the city influenced your writing and perhaps the story itself? I know there's lots of geographical references, and you even managed to work in a reference of Ryan Reynolds somehow. <laughs> well, it's hard not to. Yeah, Vancouver has been a really important part of the Wakeland series since the beginning. I chose it because it's the city that I know the best. It's where I grew up. And I think that its history really lends itself to the detective crime fiction genre. We have this beautiful picture postcard image, a very cutting edge, progressive city. And then there's this darker side. And I think that putting those sides in conversation is just really good for the kind of books that I write. What kind of research did you have to do to write about the local crime scene? Just living here, mostly. I've had a couple of family members with uh, run-ins and certain things that happened to them, uh, a home invasion in our family, which was really tough. So it's not something that's really distant from me. It's something that's on our doorstep. But I also do research, reading about the history of the city, talking to people, whether law enforcement professionals or people on the other side of things, just trying to represent the city accurately and, and some of the different forces that are at play there. The book also deals with issues of addiction and recovery, as well as gentrification and displacement. Why were these themes important for you to explore? Was there a message there you're hoping to convey? It's not so much a message, but just a sense of what's going on in 2023 in the life of the city. And what I see is a lot of compassion fatigue, people who are really kind of talking past one another, this gulf between the rich and powerful and everyone else who is, you know, not able to own homes and sort of facing a real downward curve to their lifestyle. And that kind of class warfare is what Sunset and Jericho is about. It's about a group of young, radicalized people going to the extremes of trying to hold the powerful accountable and change things and turning to violence to do it, which is sort of the point where Wakeland, as a detective, breaks with them. He's actually very sympathetic to some of the things that they believe, but the violence is something that he's not comfortable with. So he's in the position of actually being more closely sympathetic to the people he's after, rather than his clients who tend to be more of the wealthier people. Are any of the characters in the book, Sam, based on real people? Not really. 
There is an element of the story that takes place at City Hall involving the mayor and the mayor's brother. It's not based on any real politicians living or dead in Vancouver's history. But I did want to capture the element of City Hall, which is kind of ignoring the undercurrents in the city, which I, I think is a real issue. Your writing style has been described as gritty and noir. Can you talk about how you developed that writing style and, and why you're drawn to that genre? You know, both in what I read and what I write, that just came very naturally, that development. You know, as, as a kid, I read everything. I loved Larry McMurtry and Pat Conroy and very, you know, literary authors. I'd read Westerns, Roman, you know, anything I could get from the library, I would take out. And then there was just a point where I looked at my bookshelf and it was mostly crime novels. It was a lot of Sue Grafton, Elmore Leonard's. Hammett and Chandler and John D. McDonald and Ross McDonald and just sort of thinking, huh, I guess I like crime fiction the most. And that was just sort of the moment where I, I sort of accepted that. And I had an identical moment as a writer where after churning out a bunch of very bad wannabe MFA lit fiction about, you know, tortured young men and all that kind of stuff, I just sort of went, you know, what I really want to write about is crime fiction. This is what I like, and this is what I think I can most honestly write about the things that are important to me using that as a, a way in. Can you talk about your writing process, Sam? How do you approach writing a new novel? Well, it usually starts with the characters and a situation. So with Sunset and Jericho, it started with this idea of two murders occurring on two beaches at the same time. So one of the victims is the mayor's brother, this very, you know, born with a silver spoon, kind of ne'er-do-well. I kind of based him on Roger Clinton, that sort of standing next to the powerful guy, but kind of perpetually in trouble, that, that kind of character. And then the other one would be this younger, poor character who has kind of gone a real radical route. So once I had the idea, I just started digging into it. I write by hand. So I print it out and then type it out. And that sort of gives me an extra pass on editing it. And I just went right through it. And I would say it took about a year with revisions to get it to a point where I was comfortable showing it to other people. And the research was sort of done all the way through that. So even in the later stages, I was still talking to people connected with City Hall, you know, just to get little details right and how you'd call this character and, you know, things like that. It's a long process. It's not particularly efficient but it just happens to work well for me. What do you hope readers of the book will take away from reading Sunset and Jericho? You know, more than anything, just a sense of joy. I mean, I believe detective fiction and genre fiction should be fun. It should not be work. It should not be particularly instructive or carrying a message. It should just be something that is a joy to pick up. Beyond that, though, I hope they get a sense of recognition a sense that this book captures something of life in 2023 in all its messiness and complexity. How about your plans for future books in the series? Maybe a sneak peek into an upcoming project you've got in the works? Well, I don't want to give too much away. I don't know where the series is going to go after this. I have a couple of ideas, but Sunset and Jericho it ends with a real pivotal moment in Wakeland's life. And where it goes depends on how he reacts to that. And this sounds vaguely pretentious, but he has to tell me where it's going to go. <laughs> um, beyond that, I have a standalone historical novel that I've been working at, and I hope to do a little bit more with that. This is the best of the series, I think. 
And what's the subject of the standalone historical novel, Sam? It's been changing a little bit, but my hope was to talk about the birth of harm reduction and the opioid crisis in Vancouver. Historical fiction is a lot harder, so it's a little slower going. But uh, I'm doing the research now, and I hope to dedicate the next few months to a year to diving into that. What does Sam do when he's not writing? I love walking around the city. I love going to old bookstores. I love coffee shops and whiskey and old movies. I'm a huge fan of the Cinematheque and the Van City Theatre in, in Vancouver, and the very weird one at the top floor of the Tinseltown Mall. So you can probably find me there. I'd like to thank Sam Weeb, author of Sunset and Jericho, and Susan Musgrave, author of Exculpatory Lilies, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC's Made in BC Book Club. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Search, browse, buy. Black Press Media brings you today's drive. Find your new vehicle on our exclusive platform and get driving. At todaysdrive.com, you'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. With new and used vehicles from the dealership around the corner and dealers across BC. The best venue to find your next vehicle is todaysdrive.com.